loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today I'm talking with Jana Beecham and Katie Ortlip, authors of Living with Dying. Jana Beecham recently edited National Geographic Science Encyclopedia and was a contributing editor for National Geographic's The Ultimate Explorer Field Guide, Birds. Under the pen, ta- pen name Yana N. Malcolm, she's written more than 130 books for juveniles and young adults for Scholastic, Simon & Schuster, HarperCollins, and, and more. Katie Ortlip is an RN and LCSW, co-author of Spiritual Tools for the Dying. She received her nursing degree from Santa Barbara City College and a BS in psychology and master's in social work from SUNY Albany. She's been a social worker for Asante Hospice for 25 years. Welcome, Yana and Katie. Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you, Cheryl. Nice to have you with me today. And thank you for your book, which... um, uh, I must say that I I love books where the person's, the story of how you came to make the book is evident, um, mm-hmm. even though it is in, uh, in its main um, purpose, a practical guide, I would say. Would that be a good way to describe it in your minds? Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Yes. It's uh, the whole purpose was that for someone who's in the middle of um, uh, caregiving and and has no time to read anything can just flip open the book and find what they're looking for a simple solution or um, or some quick advice. And and that's a little hard to distill. I I know uh, from my own experiences and and. Um, you know, the experiences of those I, I work with, because you do, you know, delve into some of the more difficult um, aspects of caring for someone, like um, the the self-care of the caregiver and, and those kinds of subjects, which can really be quite complicated. So I, I appreciate that it was full of lots of short practical suggestions, because that can just give you sort of a toehold in those moments. Yeah, Cheryl, that's why it took us five years to complete the book, because we had to keep cutting back and cutting back and just get to the essential, most important points in each topic. And we wanted to have one book that was approximately 200 pages that covered enough on every subject to be helpful, but not have too much, you know, too many words, too many paragraphs. Um, So someone could use it, as Yana said, when they're in the trenches, um, taking care of someone, you know, at the end of their life. Absolutely. So let's, I would like to just um, give you each an invitation to say a little more uh, about how you came to want to write this book. And then, of course, when you write a book like this, I'm sure it leads to work with people who then read the book. <laughs> so <laughs> you've made a you've made a life decision, not not just a writing a book decision, I would imagine. And I'd I'd like the listeners to kind of get the background on on what made it so important for you to write it. 
Okay, you, Yana, you go. Okay, I'll start. Um, <laughs> Katie and I were friends, uh, and then we became neighbors. And I always knew that Katie was a hospice social worker, which to me, I but I didn't know anything about hospice. I just knew that she spent every day dealing with people who are dying or dealing with families who were taking care of people who were dying. And that's why it was a surprise to me when, when one day she, I asked her how she was doing and she said, I'm doing great. Today was a good death. And um, that, that was the eye opener for me, uh, you know, thinking about what is a good death and how can I have it? And so that so, wasn't something you considered before that, that that, that existed in a way or that uh, she could come home happy about a good death? Right. It was, I didn't even know, I, 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 I guess I sort of thought of death as a series of unfortunate incidents, you know, uh, that it just happens to you. Uh. <laughs> and, and, and Katie, Katie, <laughs> yes. but uh, Katie made it really clear that, you know, there are ways to have a good death. And, and she talked to me about, you know, it takes planning and, and she explained to me the things that you could do to help the body go and, and not interfere with the, the job that the body's doing that the body does know how to die itself and she explained all these things to me and it, it was really really comforting it made me think oh we are there is sort of a a system there's a system and and it it's a good system so but shortly after that um uh, my father was diagnosed he, he he had always had prostate cancer for a number of years but it had metastasized to his bones and he was put on hospice with 6 months to live and Katie became his hospice worker and all the information she had been giving me she had talked about uh uh, I said, is there a book that I can use? That's such great information. She said, no, I've often thought we should write it, sort of a death for dummies, as mm-hmm. she said to me, because she <laughs> spends every day telling the same information that she told me. Uh, and um, so I, being a writer, said, let's write this book. And the book began really, in reality, when my dad was put on hospice, and we really started sort of chronicling the last months, weeks, days of his life and how his body actually followed that system, she said. And, and also the other part was the um, taking, being a caregiver and how to give the best par- care that I could possibly give, not being a caregiver <laughs> in mm. my nature. And Cheryl, Yana's <laughs> <laughs> come a long way. Yes, thank you. <laughs> they don't run for it, me. It is, it is something that can be learned, huh, Yana? <laughs> yes, it is. It is. And it's really, I watch Katie. She's my model. She was just visiting my mother this morning. My mom is 93 and she's living with me right now. And Katie, my mom had had a cold. Katie walked in. She knelt in front of her so that they were face to face. My mom was sitting in a chair to ask her how she was doing. And I just watched my mom go from, you know, kind of a tense, upset, worried about what was going on with her to completely relaxed. It looked like Katie had all the time in the world to spend. And she was just about to launch into a full day of working with people with the dying. But she looked like she could spend hours with mom. And that was the big lesson I had today. And I have every time I watch you with patients. Well, taking time is one of the most important things we all can do. Um, Just taking time to sit and listen. And that's a big part of my job is, is listening. But to get back to the book, 
um, I have found over the years I've done hospice work is that I am, I repeat myself over and over again. There's so many myths about hospice care to begin with, and there's so many myths about things like morphine, about dehydration, and uh, the use of antibiotics at the end of life. Um, there's so many things that people don't understand or they don't have the, the right information. And so I really felt it was important to have a book that could address all of these myths and also just explain to people how the body dies so that the fear is decreased because there's a big fear and a lot of anxiety with death and especially when you're caring for someone who you love who is dying, um, you know, you want to do the right thing. And I think the, the book provides a lot of the, the information and reassurance so people feel confident in their care. And so that, is, that was the big hope for writing this book. Yeah. Well, I, I can give a little, uh, I guess I'd call it a personal endorsement on that score because um, as you may or may not be aware, I think probably you are, I took care of my wife for years and years and years yes, before I she died. Mm-hmm. And she was actually ill for 10 years. Wow. Uh, and it was life-limiting that entire time. She was always expected to die. She just kept not dying. Um, uh, I think she might have been years. on hospice for four years or something. Oh, <laughs> ten years <laughs> is a long time. Um, and and what that resulted in, pr- almost everything that you described uh, in the book, like the various medications, the various ways of lifting someone in and out of bed, the... You know, all of those details, I had experienced almost all of them, and I don't think I've ever seen as comprehensive a list of those things that if someone is sick for a long time, you will almost certainly encounter. Maybe, uh, you know, we had a Hoyer lift in our house. Well, that's because she weighed a lot more than me. Mm. I I don't know that everyone would need a Hoyer lift, but... um, For, for listeners, that's a, a contraption that actually helps move someone out of bed and back mm-hmm. into bed. And, um, looks like keeps, a sling, doesn't it? It looks yeah. like a sling, and it yeah, keeps sling. you from, from hurting. It kept me from hurting my own body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but so I think, I think it is, your book is quite complete in that way, and knowledge does tend to comfort us, doesn't it? Yeah, it really decreases the fear because yeah. someone might say, for example, um, you know, my my loved one is not eating or drinking anymore. I don't want them to starve to death. I don't want them to become dehydrated. But at the end of life, this is normal and it's not painful and there are ways to keep the body comfortable. So right away, the, the caregiver knows, okay, I don't have to force them to eat or drink. That that actually is not a good thing and it, it takes that pressure off. So even something as simple as that can can really ease, ease worry. And, and that came came up in my own family when my mom was dying because my brother's a chef. Oh man. And, and he kept wanting to make her eat. And at some at at some point she said, I'm not going to their house anymore. <laughs> you <laughs> yeah. know what's the problem? Yep. Well they're trying to make me eat. And I'm like, well why don't you just tell them you're not going to eat? <laughs> You know? and it and they they could accept it once they understood. So I think that is a really important thing that um, it's kind of upside down world, isn't it? The things yep. you would usually do with someone who's unwell, like give them some broth, you know, help them with those things. You may not want to be doing if someone yeah. is dying. 
And food, food really, feeding really represents love. I think that we equate feeding someone to love. And so we just have to teach people that you can, you can express love in different ways. It doesn't have to be giving food. There, there are other ways to express love. Yeah, that was the sort of the, the genesis of the book when Katie started talking to me about that, because I, I really had no idea that, you know, it could actually hurt if people eat and they, it puts pressure on, um, you know, your organs, right? And, and water, artificial hydration also mm-hmm. can press, actually make them actually in pain instead yeah. of yep. comfortable. And and the not having food and and uh, that dehydration. Uh, yeah, well, at the end of life, as you become dehydrated, you you sort of go to a natural sedation, and your body increases the endorphins, which are our natural painkillers, and people get sometimes even semi a little bit euphoric as they get dehydrated, as long as good mouth care is provided. So we teach uh, how to provide good mouth care, how to ease some of the dryness. Um, that can be uncomfortable. But um, yeah, I think that it goes against our natural instincts sometimes. Uh, uh, same with the use of morphine. Uh, we think we have myths about it making people crazy or that is going to cause addiction. And pe- we have to teach people how we use the morphine, how we titrate it and adjust it so that people aren't getting too much. But those are the kinds of things that I felt really needed to be um, addressed and that people really need to understand. Yeah, I, I'm recalling when my my wife uh, had to have pretty strong uh, medication for a lot of the time she was sick because mm-hmm. her particular cancer affected the bones, which mm-hmm. is oh, a pretty hard hard pain to Yes, <laughs> to one of the tackle. worst pains. And I can't tell you the number of times people would come up to her and say, aren't you afraid you'll be addicted? Uh, <laughs> and um, to which, I mean, she she developed a bunch of replies, so I didn't have to do much until <laughs> later on in the story when she wasn't talking anymore. But uh, she used to say to people, if I live long enough to be addicted, I'll deal with it. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that's a good answer. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I think there there is that... Um, what would be the right answer in a um, returning to health situation is often the wrong answer for someone who's that sick. Yeah, and right. it's very to get that across, not just to caregivers, but to an entire community. We really had to train the community on those things, too. I know wow. you kind of want to put it on a T-shirt after a while, just, yeah. just to have T-shirts printed out so you don't have to keep repeating yourself. Yes. Well, I'm not also, alive because I'm strong. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I'm not worried about addiction. <laughs> you know, there's uh-huh. all these great things. <laughs> well, it, it's funny. Also, I've talked to people who don't want to, they've, you know, they've, they're a caregiver by, and they've been given morphine to give to their loved one or patient, and they, um, they're, they tell me that they are afraid to give it. They're afraid they're going to kill them, and that's, you know, the whole point is not. That's another myth, right, Katie? Well, yeah, because um, the morphine isn't what kills the person. It's, it's their disease. The morphine helps them go, go easier, easy, yeah. you know, easier. Um, and it would take a whole lot of mor- morphine to kill someone, and the, the amounts we use are just tailored to that specific person. Um, so. Before yeah. we go to the break, I just want to—I want—I want to read this little part of this little list at the beginning of the book that I found um, quite quite good um, for caregivers. 
kind of at the beginning of the whole process. Mm-hmm. Your loved one's illness will never happen at a convenient time. You won't ha- you won't have enough time or money to help out the way you would like. Just when you think you've got all the caregiving solved, something will happen to make it all fall apart and you'll have to start over. You will probably quarrel with a f- close family relative about how to give the best care possible. At times you may feel overwhelmed by grief. There will be moments when you will probably feel resentment followed quickly by enormous guilt. I like that. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> you will start sacrificing your health for your loved ones, and that won't turn out well, I would ask, I would add. Yeah. You might reach a point where you are burnt out and absolutely certain that you cannot go one more day. Despite all of the above in the end, you will be glad you were there. Um, you know that if 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 someone only read that list so that when all those things happened they would have a reference point mm-hmm. and not feel that somehow they were failing in the caregiving oh, that by God. itself would help people great that's so great to hear cuz that's really a true list <laughs> it is a true list yeah <laughs> you're you're incredibly fortunate if there are things on that list that actually don't happen yes um, I and i hear them all the time i hear them almost daily um uh, with my different you know with different people i visit and or with uh family that have lost someone there's always a little bit of regret afterwards about something and it's it's so normal and that's the first thing i tell people is what you're feeling is normal but <laughs> um because we, we all have regrets yeah, and well, we and did the best we as, could. But we did the best yes. we could. That's where also the butt as, comes in. As someone who's focused on grief, I do feel that's, um, I don't particularly buy the stages of grief. It's much more um, random and, and chaotic than that. Yeah. But yeah, if, I was very add one, if I was going to add one, it would be um, thinking you should have done something different. Mm-hmm. Uh, because to me, we want to think that even if it makes us wrong, there's something that could have prevented it. Otherwise, the world feels random, which, of course, to an extent it is. So mm-hmm. I would yeah. add that one. So we're, we're ready for our first break. That came very fast. And uh, when we get back, let's, let's uh, pick up the thread of how to actually uh, walk through that sense of doing it wrong or not quite having the right um, uh, the right way to go to do everything perfectly because I think that's so so important. And listeners, you can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. You can like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, all of that social media stuff. And to find Yana Beecham and Katie Ortlip, you can go to livingwithdying.com. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, 
parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN. The Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Katie Ortlip and Yana Beecham about their book, Living with Dying. And uh, during the break, Katie and Yana, I was, I was telling you that this, um, this sense of uh, regret or, or imperfection and how we care that can often follow people around, I just think it's so important to talk about that because, um, uh, you know, that can be addressed over time. I, I certainly felt that way uh, in the few, first few years, very wow. much. The mm-hmm. first few years that I was caregiving, um, I, we had kids. I was I was just managing so much, and what it made me do was run faster and faster. Well, it and, sounds like me. Yeah. <laughs> and and what that resulted in was that I wasn't. Um, making the kind of emotional connection with my family that is what I needed. And I was feeling like I wasn't doing enough. The more, the faster I went, the more I felt I wasn't doing enough. Mm-hmm. Wow. Exactly. Uh, I, yes. And, uh, at some point, I fell apart. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. I just, I, everything crashed because I couldn't keep yeah. it up. No, you can't so, sustain that. You can't sustain that You can't that sustain that, and, uh, and especially if it's going to be a long haul, which I didn't know at the beginning, honestly, yeah. um, but became clear as time went on, wow, this could really be a long time. Yeah. Uh, and I started uh, just relaxing into it more, and I felt, uh, so I want to talk with you, because it's one thing to say caregivers need to take care of themselves, and it's quite another thing to talk about how one does that when you feel such a um, pressing and loving desire to take care of the person who's ill. Mm-hmm. Can you both talk about that a little bit? Well, you start, Yana, with your experience, because it sounds like Yana went through something very familiar only over a shorter period of time. Yeah, I did. I, I, I don't know how I would have managed the 10 years that you care gave, but... Um, 
my I, I, I did exactly what you did. I just, uh, as soon as my father was starting to suffer bone pain and be, I just panicked. I, I thought, I've got to solve this. It's up to me. So, you know, you're Googling like mad at night what to do and running frantically from one doctor to another. And just all I did was run and um, make my parents, my father and my mom, stressed out. The, the faster I tried to, hur- to hurry, everybody in the car, we're going to the doctor, quick, get out, you know, uh, so uh, I, it was just frantic, and I, um, I, I've, I've since learned that, you know, we have very little time, so go slowly, that I keep, I say that to myself every day, that, you know, it, it, the more important something is, the more time you need to take, and it's nothing. Gonna, nothing's going to fall apart in five, ten minutes, an hour. Um, I uh, so that's the thing that that's the big lesson I learned. And of course, I I actually once hospice joined me in the uh, you know caring of with my dad. It really was like a huge break to have other people there and and make me realize that you know what. I don't need to give up time that I spend with spent used to spend with my girlfriend every morning I'd walk with her and that was my I don't know that was my therapy for the day and I gave mm-hmm. that up instantly I gave everything up that was good for me mm-hmm. I gave you know <laughs> a, a, everything because I was going to be the best caregiver on the planet <laughs> and um and uh, I I soon discovered kind of with the help of Katie that really the first thing you need to do is identify really what is needed. And so my my parents' needs were actually pretty simple. I needed to drive them to the doctor and uh, you know at the time at the start of the um, caregiving and spend time with them. and they and the thing I wasn't doing was spending time with them. I was, being with them, but I was herding them around like they had to run everywhere. And I, uh, they really just needed me to just sit and listen, like Katie mentioned at the beginning. Katie, the perfect mm-hmm. listener, you're so good. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I, I have to tell myself when I, even with my mom right now, I go and sit with her. I try to imitate Katie. I sit down, I move my chair close, and I ask her a question, and I don't need to have the answer for it. I just listen. And all of that really helps you take care of yourself because what you're doing is giving yourself a break. Um, we went to this conference and we learned that, that there was a yoga wellness person there. And she said, take time, take one moment to take a deep breath when you sit with your loved one and breathe in through your right nostril. <laughs> so... Supposed to help you just relax. enough concentration <laughs> to have an impact, right? Uh-huh. It is, and I, it I, energizes I, you. <laughs> yeah, I'm realizing listening that uh, I rather got saved from myself because oh. uh, my wife was an extremely lovable person. She had a lot of people who wanted to be with her. And uh, when she started needing a lot of help, um, she said, uh, we're the unit and we're going to have everyone help us. Oh, wow. That's smart of her. Uh, isn't it, though? Yes. Yeah. People on board with that. It made so much difference. She said, there is not one person in that whole constellation of people that can be my wife. Mm-hmm. Ah. Mm-hmm. But there are a lot of people that can do the other stuff. Wow. Yeah. Boy. And, I, and I think it does take uh, creating a team. And hospice is part of the team. 
And then I think people need to, when people ask if they can help, one of the the points we make in the book is that write a list of all the things that people can possibly do from something like picking up something at the store to sitting with your loved one for a couple hours once a week. Just write a list of things that, that people can possibly do. And when they ask if they can help, show them the list and make a schedule because I find that people really do want to help. And as, as a community, it makes us richer. It makes us more compassionate if we do, if we do help each other. Yeah. And um, in one, in our book, we have a chapter, chapter four, the whole chapter is about taking time for yourself and, and care for the caregiver. And we have 10 ways to decrease stress and so there, there are a lot of common sense things you can do that we um, outline in the book. Um, when I meet with a family, I tell them that we are there for the caregiver as much as we're there for the patient and that it's our job to make sure that that caregiver is taking care of him or herself because we need that caregiver. And uh, and so we do make suggestions about self-care, about Accepting a hospice volunteer, you know, I had one patient, his wife um, sang in the choir at her church, and that was her outlet, and she, she, you know, she got great joy from doing that, so we made sure that she continued to do that once a week, and we arranged for a volunteer to go out and sit with her husband, so sometimes the solutions seem so simple, but they really make a tremendous difference. Yeah, it might be a matter of case. Go ahead. Go ahead. ahead. Oh, I was going to say, you know, now that you're saying that, I was thinking, you know, because you make lists of what would help you with your um, caregiving, you know, like picking up medications or getting, uh, mowing the lawn or whatever. But uh, it might be good for just as soon as you start or in that position, make a list of everything that means something to you and makes you happy so that you don't let it go. Mm -hmm. I. I'm a list maker, obviously. <laughs> uh, well, but there's also, and I, um, you know, the the things that that took care of me changed radically over those ten years, mm. and so um, there's also that 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 many caregivers are in a process of profound change. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and but but it's it's having yourself on the list, maybe differently than ever before. In yeah. my case, that's certainly true. Even though I, you know, it wasn't the first time I've I'd thought about focusing too much on others, but uh, it really took that to a whole different different depth, a whole different level. Yeah. A whole different level. I, I want to share another another list, which um, because I think the thing that took care of me both I have the uh, most in that time is the moments where I uh, was just with her mm-hmm. without anything else going on. Yes, great. Yeah. Uh, because that gets lost in the shuffle sometimes. It does as you're trying to manage what's going on. To just I remember one time in specific, uh, she was napping. And I and I just went and laid down with her, and I held her hand. I never fell asleep, but it was very transporting mm. to completely let go of everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and just be there. But you have a wonderful how to be present list. Would you like to read that, or would you like me to? It'd be uh, great to hear you yeah, read how about, it. Yeah, I'd like to hear you read <laughs> okay. it because it'll tell advice. I'm we'll not take our own advice, maker, but I like your list. <laughs> how to be present? Sit down rather than stand over the patient. Sitting means I have time for you. Don't give advice unless asked, and resist the urge to cheer someone up. Allow your loved one to express regret. 
Don't say, you've had a good life, you shouldn't be sad. Allow a patient a chance to open up. Ask, what's your biggest worry or concern right now? Accept people where they are. It's their journey and they need to move through it in their own way. Express love and appreciation openly. And then you have another list about uh, how to listen. But I think this this really captures the sense of presence that helps mm-hmm. both people so very much. Right. I, I um, think... I think also, you know, when I first had kids, I, I didn't realize that they would take, they would cut into the day in terms of time. I mean, I, I didn't think, you know, so I just kept trying to continue what I did before children that, you know, I have a full 10 hour work day and I'm going to be on the job writing and doing all these things. And there they were. And there was always kind of just a minute, I have to finish this. Oh, well, hold on. Yeah. So I, I, it took me a while to figure out that, well, my life is now different I have to limit, uh, uh, reduce my expectations of myself because I started to feel like a failure in, in a job, which consequently made me a failure as a parent because I wasn't succeeding in both. And I think it goes exactly with caregiving. Like you were, you had, you were raising your kids too. So it, it's it, you have to carve out time that is actually time for the person you're caring for, and it, it really is time. And and uh, instead of just a run in and run out. And I think that time is also, like you said, carving out time for yourself. I, uh, and, you know. and maybe also because I realized that what used to take me a long time, and this applies to parent parenting as well, what used to take me a long time to do a little of, I learned to do uh, in a little time a lot of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know exactly how to, <laughs> it was, it was my intention about, uh, if I was going to go listen to music, I might only need to listen to one song, but I had to be very present for myself right? Uh, That's great. during that time. Uh, a 10-minute walk might do it, whereas if I, if I wasn't really appreciating having the 10, you know, the hour, it might not help that much. Yeah. So right. exactly. uh, it's, it's recognizing being, yeah. the gift giving yourself maybe does that resonate for you yes 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 I think that was uh you know when I walked with my friend I sort of finally realized okay I can't do an hour walk but I can certainly do you know a half hour or we can have coffee instead of the walk and that's a half hour just what you're saying um and and that's just as good and fully commit to that time yeah to be to be willing to uh prioritize it if even if you have to modify it Yes. Right. Great. Mm. That's a good. And there's advice. some things you can let go of. Maybe your, your house can't be as clean. Maybe you have to neglect your yard a little bit. But I, I think, yeah, I think figuring out what is the most important and you know focusing on that and everything. A lot of things can wait. Yeah. Um, Katie, I have a question for you because you have such a a long and wide experience of working with families that mm-hmm. are facing end of life, and we may not quite finish it because we just have a few minutes left. But I thought very often during that period of time, and I still do, about people who have no human resource or very low human resource in terms of community and friends and Mm -hmm. family and very little financial resource. When those things, you know, if you don't have enough money, people will help. Uh, If you don't have enough people, money will help. But Mm -hmm. Uh, if you don't have... 
if you don't have both, how do mm-hmm. how do families navigate that? Or, or you know, if often let's say a, um, a husband's dying, the wife is caring for them, and and they're kind mm-hmm. of isolated. What do you recommend in that kind of circumstance? Well, that's where that, those are the most challenging cases for me, especially being the social worker, because I really focus in on people's support systems, um, not only emotional support, but just the practical caregiving. And, I've, you know, unfortunately, we have a, a number of these families all the time. Um, and I think that hospice is a tremendous help. And I we get called from get calls from physicians to go see patients who sometimes are absolutely alone. Uh, But because the doctors suggested it to the patients, they may reluctantly let us in. And I think we have to build trust and build a relationship with them. But my job is to help uh, create a support system. And sometimes hospice is their big support system. Sometimes we become their family. And if someone's alone, we often visit them more often. Maybe it starts with just the nurse and the social worker, and then gradually, once we gain their trust, we add, you know, care, uh, bath aides and volunteers, and we try to find out who has been in their lives. If they don't have family, maybe their neighbors or friends that have been involved. I may get in touch with agencies through through the state or you know local agencies who can provide some you know Meals on Wheels, or you know other services um, if they're low income. Sometimes I can get them some state caregivers, mm. but it it really is a big, you know, I take it on as a project and I often visit people who are alone more often. I check in sometimes, you know, every day or two just to see that they're doing okay. And it, it's, it's a big challenge, but we, we, I, I see the difference we make and that people are often extremely grateful um, that they have, you know, they have this special care. And that means, um, also, choosing really um, generous hospice organizations because mm-hmm. I know that some hospice organizations offer less than others, but they yeah. all have to have volunteers. So that's a good thing for people to know. It's time yeah. for our second break, and we can we'll continue with that when we get back. So, listeners, you can you can go to my website, weatheringgrief.com, the Good Grief host page, and to find Yana Beecham and Katie or. Ortlip, you can go to livingwithdying.com. Back after the break. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. 
listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm here with Jana Beecham and Katie Ortlip to talk about their book, Living with Dying, uh, a book for caregivers full of a lot of practical suggestion, but I would also say an underlying um, comforting message of enoughness. <laughs> I guess that's how, you know, that, <laughs> that, what, we, that we can, what we can manage to do it needs to be enough. Mm-hmm. And, yes. um, and, kind of evaluating what we can really give and how we make room for the relationship. Um, you know, there's no practical thing I regret not doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, huh. I, I can't think of one. I had a lot of time to regret and get over that. And, you know, but... Um, the, wow, the you were there for 10 years. That's pretty impressive. And, mm-hmm. and raising kids. Well, I don't know if it's impressive as much as I let go of that perfection orientation Mm -hmm. over time. Yes. Uh, And and I don't know what we can do um, to encourage that in the people that might be be, uh, listening because it seems so essentially important to do it all right. Mm-hmm. But that can sometimes lead to a tremendous stress and agony, you know. Yeah, I, yeah, and I think sometimes people just have to go through it. I mean, I I can think of so many situations where I had to urge a caregiver over and over again to get some help, to really take a break, accept a volunteer, go out, take a, you know, so many times and a lot of times they would resist at first. They felt they had to do it themselves or maybe the patient did not want someone else to come into the home. So sometimes it takes the person nearly having a breakdown, which is unfortunate, but you know, there's only so much we can do to encourage people, but sometimes people just have to have to get to a point where they almost break to accept help. And uh, again, that's unfortunate, but um, sometimes that's what has to happen for people to really get that they need help and to accept help. That's, that resonates with me because I'm, I'm thinking of a time where um, my my partner was in a wheelchair at that point, and the, the chair had to be folded up, put in the trunk, taken out of the trunk, you know, all of that mm-hmm. uh, logistical yeah. stuff. And I was having a little trouble with my back. Mm. It just wasn't feeling very good. And, of course, I ignored it. And, well... I'm saying, of course, because a lot of people out there probably do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I put the thing in the trunk just fine. We got where <laughs> we were going. Put it back in. And on the way out of the car going into the house, I completely hurt my back. Mm. Wow. And it was two weeks where I had to lie down. Yeah. Your body forced you. My body just rest. said, yeah you, yeah, you knew that it wasn't feeling good and you mm-hmm. went ahead and did it. And that was a real extreme lesson because in that two weeks, I couldn't take care of anyone. Mm. So wow. I think that's, um, that was kind of the final 
final cap on the bottle of needing to take care of myself. Yeah, I think that's the biggest challenge is people accepting help. Uh, that That is the, the biggest challenge, probably one of the biggest challenges I find in my work. Hmm. So let's let's talk about some magic ways you get people to do that. I mean, I, I know <laughs> I bring up that experience. I may not tell people exactly what happened, but I mm-hmm. will talk about, you know, if you don't take care of yourself, you're not going to be able to do this. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, continue to keep the other orientation a little bit. But are there other ways that you know to help people um, buy into the idea that that's important? Well, it's a constant education and, you know, right when we admit someone to hospice, that's something I talk about right away is about the importance of, of caring for them self-care. And sometimes I give some examples and some people are receptive right away or maybe they've been doing it. They've, they've actually been good at self-care. But I think it's a constant, I have to constantly remind people and that's just a big part of my job. And, uh, like I said, sometimes it takes a few visits to, for people to be receptive. Sometimes uh, it's the patient that says, I'm worried about you. And th- their big concern is that their caregiver is going to get burned out or they don't want to be a burden. So sometimes sometimes I stress to them, by you getting help for yourself, you are helping your loved one. You're, you're easing their worry. And so sometimes if I, if I reframe it or put it in a different perspective, they, they can see it differently. And then, you know, there, there are practical things in our book. We have um, different ideas for people to help themselves. Sometimes they're very, seem very simple, like rewarding yourself. Even if you just take a few minutes a day to sit down, have a glass of wine, um, take a few minutes to read a book that you're interested in. It, it doesn't have to be a big major event. Uh, so it's just introducing different ideas to people. Yeah, actually, that's a good idea, Katie, because I, I, I think our life is you know, often defined by celebrations, birthdays, holidays. Um, We like to wear hats and celebrate things (laughs) and Katie and (laughs) our families together. But I think just finding something that is your, and call it your celebration moment. I did it. I made it through today. Um, Just giving yourself a happy thought moment, time, and a Mm -hmm. place and um, is a a good start yeah, you know, the, yeah. I'm looking right now at a at a little a little list of of things that seem really helpful in this score, and that you you have it amplified more. But I think the list is is helpful in and of itself of things that we need to take time for, uh-huh. um, time to breathe, time to gather information. That's huge. Uh, yes. Time to eat right, time to exercise, time to do the things you love, time to see friends time to just be with your patients Mm -hmm. and uh and you know that makes it sound like that would be a hundred hours a week Mm -hmm. but but actually i'm remembering that um we did a lot of uh she and i did a lot of um retreats with steven and andrea levine and a lot of what we did there was breathe Mm -hmm. uh you know so we got really good at just taking a breath it could change the whole energy just one breath absolutely yes you know uh so that that doesn't have to take that takes one second for instance Mm -hmm. um the gathering information that might be the time to call someone and tell them to gather information or (laughs) you know um it actually takes as much time to eat right and wrong whatever you consider right and wrong 
it's a matter of that intention to to um, be nurturing, I guess. You know, uh, as examples of time doesn't mean a lot of time necessarily. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I, I think it means the committed time. Like you were saying, focus. allow yourself to enjoy that 10-minute walk. Allow yourself to... Um, just not have any other distraction when you're, uh, you know, scheduling uh, your whatever, getting your information, research information. My problem is I have three other things going. And, um, you know, you put something in the washer and you remember, oh, my God, I forgot to make that phone call. And then you put something in the, I, I mean, I have a, you know, sort of ADD caregiving, half the dryers sticking open with clothes out of it and <laughs> those kind of things. But because I go, oh, I, I forgot to do this. I forgot to do, that's why I make lists. Do this, do this. And it feels great when you check it off. And sometimes it's just like, pour yourself a cup of coffee. Check. But, but I think it's a simple <laughs> thing is first thing in the morning when you go in to take care of your loved one, instead of getting right into like, okay, well, do I have to change your, your depends? Do I, you know, sit down for five minutes and just hold that person's hand and say, good morning. How was, you know, just sit and just be present for five minutes and just, you know, take some deep breaths together. Talk about what, what you would like to see the day be like and start off your day together with, with that kind of quality time rather than rushing in and doing. I think just being with someone um, is really important and, and, and making that connection before you rush into your day and, and start getting caught up in, the, in all the stuff you have to do. That resonates with me. And also just because I found, um, you know, anything you do for 10 years, you get better at. Um, <laughs> I, I hope so. <laughs> it's a long process, people. But, um, but uh, one thing I found was I actually needed to be in very good contact with her, mm-hmm. or I would take too much control in an area that she could still manage. Yeah, ah, that's a good point. Long about what exactly she needed or didn't need, mm-hmm. and she'd have to go like too far I can do that you know mm-hmm. uh, that is a kind of resonance that only happens if you're being with the person in more than a practical way I mm-hmm. think for me, yeah. Yeah. yeah there goes back to listening and just being listening present and just feeling out oh where where is she you know as she got more confused I had to pick up the cognitive part you know but yes. I had to pay attention and only pick up what she couldn't do or or needed to unload and that can change from day to day. One day could be a bad day where you're having to do more. And then the next day they could be back back again a little bit more. And and so it's, exactly. it's just constantly being aware. Uh, you know, for instance, at one point she she happened to have a, have a very bad response to Ativan. Oh, uh-huh. that's oh. not uncommon. And, uh, really? I mean, almost psychotic mm-hmm. response to it. And so when she was, t- when she took that, she couldn't do anything for a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> but, but then she'd come back when it, when it um, subsided. Mm-hmm. For inst- that would be a for instance. I, I can't help but share this one little paragraph that um, I just enjoyed because it's, it's about um, our humility as caregivers and, mm-hmm. and how we um, keep our own sense of humor about ourselves. Because, Yana, you said in the book, I gained 17 pounds during my father's last year. 
not because I was sitting in front of the TV with a gallon of ice cream, but because I was always so frantic that I never took the time to eat properly. My mom's pantry is always stocked with potato chips, chocolate, cookies, peanut butter, crackers, and nuts. Those are her five food groups, and they became mine. I laughed out loud when I read that because, um, you know, it's true. You start doing what's coming easily to hand, and pretty soon, oh, no. I can, I can attest to it. I can attest to those five food groups. Yes, because <laughs> yes. they were often put, they were pushed on me too. <laughs> I know, I realize where my weight problem started years ago. <laughs> well, but I, I don't know what, what um, you know, general age range you're in, but I know that everybody's pantry had those things in mm-hmm. great supply when I was a kid. Oh, yeah. yeah, I grew up on those. Yeah, yeah. I grew up on and those. And there was... <laughs> in my family, a mom who had them all there but didn't eat any of them was always right. on a diet. <laughs> you know? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> wow, hard. Torture. The torture <laughs> system. I know. I know. I know. So we're, we're coming to the end of our time, which has flown by. Um, <laughs> I, I, think, um, I, I think that your book is so easily accessible. I, I did want to mention before we get off that the glossaries at the end, because um, even people that I that I work with with cancer, the, the vocabulary, uh, the 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 medical and and um, uh, pharmaceutical, all those different vocabularies. Your glossaries are incredible. So oh, thank good. you for that. Good. Yeah, all those, they always use, doctors always use those, uh, whatever it's an acronym or the, just the initials. Abbreviations. Yeah, yeah. abbreviations. And it's, and, and assuming, of course, I know that. And um, so it's good to have something to be able to good look to it have. up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, gosh, it's gone very fast. I hope. No, we need another hour. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hope people will go. Uh, Especially people who are currently caregiving, um, uh, uh, I feel as if uh, they could they could get a lot a big head start um, just from the the kinds of concrete suggestions because you need someone sometimes to say try this do that <laughs> you know? right so yes. I hope people will look for your book. Yeah, oh, and our hope is that it really eases the p- people's fear and anxiety about caregiving because it's so hard as it is. So just just the grief part of it, the emotional part, is hard enough. But then having to pr- provide the care, it feel like you have to know everything the yeah, doctors and everybody knows. And, yeah. So we're, our hope is that it just eases the the journey and helps, you know, just just helps the process be a little more relaxed and more, um, you know, a better. That's a you great know. place to end sure. for the day. Yeah. Thanks yeah. both so much. Well, uh, thanks so much, Cheryl. Cheryl. And both at livingwithdying.com. Next week, I'll have Elizabeth Rossner. Her book, Survivor Cafe, focus on, focuses on the legacy of trauma and her own story as the child of a Holocaust survivor. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you ne- again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.